Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, they've been leading the way in providing COVID-19 data. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center is now tracking the rollout of the new COVID-19 vaccines. So vaccine, I think, is a really exciting kind of new area of focus for the site, and it'll be really important for people to gauge just sort of when they're going to be next on the list, but also how quickly we're able to roll out vaccines and protect America and get to that point where we start to maybe worry less about this this virus. I, I think um, we don't envision anytime soon stopping ha- having to stop thinking about it, but I think having a, a vaccine that can prevent people from becoming seriously ill is, is a remarkable accomplishment. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this some major news related to the coronavirus pandemic. A House of Representatives subcommittee today reports there is evidence that Trump administration officials attempted to alter coronavirus reports issued by the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, as a result, Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the CDC, and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar have both been subpoenaed. Now, U.S. House Representative James Clyburn says his committee found evidence of a, quote, political pressure campaign to, quote, bully CDC professionals. Clyburn says Secretary Azar and Director Redfield have not cooperated with the investigation, and these subpoenas require them to submit relevant documents and emails by December 30th. And like many other states, the total number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Georgia reached another milestone. Over the weekend, Georgia reached more than a half million coronavirus cases since the State Department of Public Health began collecting and reporting data to be exact at the time of this broadcast. Here are your numbers. 509,588 COVID-19 cases in total have now been confirmed here in Georgia. 38,412 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,050 were ICU admissions. Now, since the state began recording these numbers back in March, 9,437 deaths have been confirmed. This is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is in Georgia today to campaign for the two Democrats in the U.S. Senate runoffs. Vice President-elect Harris will stop in Gwinnett County and Columbus, Georgia for John Ossoff and the Reverend Raphael Warnock. Meanwhile, President Trump tweeted over the weekend he's coming to Georgia on January 4th to support Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. So far, more than 1.3 million Georgians have cast their ballots in early voting or by mail. If you're planning to do in-person this week, check your county's election site or the Georgia Secretary of State's website. Hours will be different due to the Christmas holiday. 
In Fulton County, locations will be open today through Wednesday until 6 p.m. and resume on Saturday and Sunday, but with specific hours. So again, please check ahead before heading to the voting locations. Mercedes-Benz Stadium will open as an early voting site tomorrow through next Wednesday, excluding Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. Now, speaking of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the Atlanta Falcons' home games for the season have come to an end. The team finishes the NFL season on the road with stops in Tampa and Kansas City. Yes, it's been a rough year for the Falcons, but as the saying goes, there's always next year. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. An infodemic, that's the word the World Health Organization is coined to describe the myths, misinformation, and inaccurate data surrounding the coronavirus. Now, as the WHO has noted, a lack of reliable information can have serious consequences. This we know. And that's why the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center has been so crucial. The online COVID-19 data source provides the latest information by region and outlets and also outlines critical trends. You may recall this conversation I had back in July. It is still pretty quite a small team compared to some of the other efforts around tracking, but we are very committed to the work. And we also started to understand that it wasn't just about tracking the cases and the deaths, but mm-hmm. the work that Dr. Nuzzo is really leading for us is around testing mm-hmm. um, and the impact that we know that testing is going to have on decision-making and framing the, how the pandemic unfolds across the United States. And so we've been trying to stay ahead of where we think data is going to play the most critical role and trying to really just give information, not only to policymakers who have to make decisions and to health officials that are making those decisions, but to regular everyday citizens that are trying to decide, is today the day that I go out, go to the store? Do I wear a mask? What are the sort of personal decisions I'm making for our family? And those are the things that we're we're just astounded by, just the level of interest in the data itself and how it's framing that kind of decision making. Well, since that conversation, the Coronavirus Resource Center has expanded and added some new features because of the COVID-19 vaccines that are now available or will be available, both of them. And they were recently named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2020. How cool is that? Well, joining me again is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Associate Professor and Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blower, Executive Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact, Thank you both for taking the time again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us back. Yep. Thank you. Well, let's begin here. One of the best inventions of 2020. Hey, that's not too bad, <laughs> Dr. Nuzo. Yeah, it's really, um, it's really gratifying. It's, it's nice to have recognition for all of the hard work that the, the team has done. Beth, what about you? Yeah, it's uh, definitely a career highlight. Uh, I wish that the circumstances didn't have to be what they were, because um, what that means is. Um, we're still hard at work, um, and it's still very, very important work, but it is something um, to be recognized uh, for the work that we're doing. Beth, let me stay with you because you all talked about it, this was just so much more than just tracking. But since our conversation back then, Beth, I'll start with you. What has been your observation, your reflection on the importance of this resource center that you all have now expanded? The biggest 
for me, component of the value that we're bringing is reliable data that public policymakers can depend on as they start thinking about not only how they're going to um, provide guidance to the people that are living in their communities, but also how they're going to think about public health going forward. And so we're seeing a real critical look at the public health infrastructure. Um, and I'm really hoping that our work uh, during the pandemic leads to some substantial change in the way that we see public health in communities. Dr. Nuzo, what about you? What's been your reflection? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been um, important for us to be involved in these data tracking efforts. Um, There's no shortage of data uh, in the COVID pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of efforts to to gather and analyze data, which has been really actually heartening to see um, how many groups are just, you know, applying their skills and trying to roll up their sleeves and dig into it. Um, You know, one of the things I think um, we have both seen, you know, as people who formerly worked in government and now, you know, um, as as public health um, uh, people, um, is that the interpretation of the data is really critical and and it requires a level of nuance. And so bringing sort of like that expert view of, you know, what are the data actually telling us? What can they not tell us? What does this mean for policy and practice? What should we be doing to fix the data? And how should we be acting differently within our communities? I mean, I think that really requires some some knowledge of how public health works and and what it means beyond just the, the numbers themselves. And so um, I've been really um, you know happy to be part of this interdisciplinary team that brings a diversity of expertise um, on top of just you know data um, acquisition, analytics, and visualization skills. Let's talk about the team, because as we heard in that clip coming into the segment, you all told me you still had a relatively small team. Has this team expanded since then? A very tiny bit, but for the most part, when I think about like the efforts in some of the other big data aggregating um, uh, uh, sites, definitely we're still paling in comparison. That's for sure. We're nimble, very nimble. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could take a magic wand and instantly expand the team, what areas would you want to bring more personnel in? Well, I, I know for sure that we would love to be able to have people calling states and surveying states and pulling data from local health departments. And we're doing that now. Um, but we're really just trying to rely on the data that's being made public by those jurisdictions. And I know that a lot of like the outlets like the New York Times and some of the other aggregators of the data, they have big teams that can spend all day long calling, um, filing public information requests and getting data from surveys. Um, And our collection efforts are really just around what data is already made public and aggregating it. So I think that for me, I know Dr. Nuzo may have another um, uh, set of skills that she'd like to see, but from a baseline level, I would love, I would have loved to have a a giant research team where we didn't have to um, uh, stress about uh, uh, missing or um, uh, keeping up. Uh, Dr. Nuzo, you heard what Director Blower said. Can you make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> if any listeners have some resources they would like to contribute to our, our nimble strategy. Oh, now you sound like public radio can, doing our pledge drive. <laughs> we can uh, <laughs> we can sketch for you our vision. I mean, I, I think that's it. We, you know, um, we try very hard um, to get the data, but not just get the data, in, interpret the data. And that's really the hardest thing because... The, the data environment is really kind of a mess in the sense that every state's sort of doing their own thing and trying to figure out exactly what states are doing is a really complicated job. And 
um, we try to do that with our public health lens to try to understand what the significance of those different approaches are, not just so that we can interpret the data fairly, but also make recommendations about what the data are telling us and what we should do on it. Let's talk about the states for a moment, because here in Georgia, now I want to be fair, because Georgia has come a long way since July and the information that it is collecting and providing. Georgia has really enhanced its online portal. We give these numbers every day. In terms of the states overall, has the data that they've been collecting or the way they've been collecting, has that improved at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing really improved data practices. So, you know, early on, it was um, not reliable. We States were updating data not on a daily basis. Sometimes they would not report any data for several days and we'd see these big surges in data. We're seeing a lot of leveling out on the data and the data quality. Um, I think it's also really important to highlight that the that HHS and the CDC have also really upped their data game. And so we're seeing really great granular data on hospitalizations. We're seeing new case data coming from the federal government is so encouraging, um, you know, that we're finally seeing some leadership out of the federal government. I think one of the things that Jennifer and I think a lot about um, are standards and really wishing that there was more language coming out of the um, uh, federal health infrastructure that it would allow us to understand, you know, what should be reported and how it should re- and how it should be reported. Let's dissect that a little further. Is there an assessment that you all wish you could get more from the states, whether it's in terms of demographics? I mean, we keep hearing that black and Hispanic folks are still at a disproportionate rate in terms of not only contracting the virus, but having a negative health outcomes. That's a really important area that we um, would love to see a lot more data available um, for you know, us to look at. Beth and her team, I think, really deserve credit for kind of taking the lead and getting states to um, increasingly report the racial and ethnic breakdown of cases, uh, which is really important for us to keep track on to, so we can understand which communities are, are being affected and which may be less affected and try to understand why that is so that we can um, craft uh, control strategies that are targeted um, for the communities and appropriate for the communities that are most affected. Um, but we don't see those data broken down in other areas that we track. So for instance, on testing. Um, so we know that in order to be counted as a case in the first place, for those disparities to show up in our case data, people have to get tested. Mm-hmm. And if there are disparities in who gets tested and the availability of testing and the ability of people to access testing, we're going to see disparities you know, not the full set of disparities not fully captured in the data, the case data that we have. And so that's one thing that we've been trying to look at, but that's not really something that most states uh, release. They don't really release the kind of racial ethnic breakdown of who gets tested. We've been trying to look at it from different ways by looking at testing patterns in in counties and then kind of overlay the racial and ethnic um, demographics of those counties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it is um, quite telling. We do see some states where there are huge disparities where um, you know, um, very high case fatality rates, but very low patterns of testing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's unfortunate because, you know, first of all, not only do we want to make sure that people are getting tested so that we know who's infected and who's not so that we can try to interrupt the chain of transmission. But if you don't get tested and you don't know that you have COVID, you may not know to seek medical care when mm-hmm. medical care could very well save your life. So having that breakdown and seeing if there are problems in and holes in where people are able to access testing and how they're able to access testing is really important. And that's just one area where we have seen insufficient data to help us 
um, answer those questions and, in my view, improve our response greatly. Director Blower, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the encouraging signs um, that I've seen uh, on this front is that the states who are releasing vaccine data, so the data around who's receiving vaccines, um, several of them are already sort of gearing up to be able to break that down, uh, break down the who's getting the vaccine and the racial breakdown and the ethnic breakdown of um, recipients. And I think that that's a signal that the message has been heard and that the data no longer can be siloed in this way. I think testing data is still gonna struggle in this area and we've seen real challenges um, being able to understand the testing landscape because of the inability um, for uh, the lab data to be broken down in ways that we can do this sort of deep analysis. And I hope uh, that they're gonna be course correcting when it comes to vaccines. Well, let's talk about uh, what is available. And for our listeners who may not be aware, briefly just take them through, navigate through the site. What information is there? And then how often is it updated? So we um, announced on Friday that we are now going to be sharing the publicly available data around vaccine dissemination. So if you go to the CRC, the, the Coronavirus Resource Center site, um, you can click on the vaccine vertical on the site and you'll see a map of the United States. The states that are colored in in blue are those that are sharing that data uh, publicly. When you click on those states, it'll take you to their region page where you can see all of the local data at the state level. And you'll see a number that reflects um, how many people have received that vaccine. In some instances, you'll also see another number, which is the number that is the most recent, so a daily number. Um, and then you'll see that aggregated number. Um, the data is uh, updated every day. Um, we are doing this very manually right now. So um, there are, um, as we establish a more uh, routinized way to collect this information, we're scanning um, the states. And so we've had states that have appealed to us and say, hey, we're just about to add this data. Can you um, uh, make sure that we get included in your resource? Here's the preliminary information. We have states that just went out very early on and put the data up, which was great. Um, uh, but again, a word of caution, mm -hmm. there are still very limited, um, uh, there's still very limited guidance on how this data should be expressed and how what format it should be provided in uh, coming from the federal government. And so I think that what we're seeing again is states taking very different approaches in their own public uh, displays of this information. And so um, again, we're, we're really um, emphasizing the need for more standardization around how data is shared. Um, but in the meantime, it does look like states are taking a page out of some of the lessons that they've learned over the course of the pandemic um, and have gotten this data out quite quickly and efficiently. So vaccine, I think, is a really exciting kind of new area of focus for the site. And it'll be really important um, for people to gauge just sort of when they're going to be next on the list, um, but also how quickly we're able to roll out vaccines and um, protect America and, uh, you know, get to that point where we start to maybe worry less about this, this virus. I, I think um, we don't envision anytime soon stopping, ha having to stop thinking about it, but I think having a, a vaccine that can prevent people from becoming seriously ill is, is a remarkable accomplishment. Um, so that's really exciting. You know, we continue to track trends in cases, not just um, in the U.S., but also globally, and um, you know, seeing how the U.S. is is faring compared to other countries. Sort of spoiler: we still are leading in terms of having the largest epidemic in the world. Yeah. But it's been really interesting to see some trends where um, other countries over the summer uh, had been doing quite well, and now are you know in very large peaks. 
of, of infection, possibly even bigger than they were in the spring uh, when everybody was struggling. So it's been interesting to see those trends. And then we continue, of course, to track testing to understand, um, are we casting a wide enough net to find infections, which is mm -hmm. the first step in the process of trying to slow down the number of people who are getting sick and, and getting infected and winding up in hospitals and, and dying. And, um, you know, having uh, now been tracking testing as long as we've had, we've been able to see some interesting trends. You know, we mm -hmm. notice as of late, the speed with which we're increasing testing has slowed, uh, which is um, a bit of a worrisome trend. Hopefully that will pick back up now that we've, you know, um, moved away from the Thanksgiving holiday where there was a real big drop, um, but we're about to head into some more holidays. So anyway, um, we have a lot of, of things that we're keeping tabs on that give us a sense of, of how well the country we're doing um, and where areas where we could do better. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Associate Professor and Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blauer, Executive Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. And we're talking about their Coronavirus Resource Center, which has been so crucial this year. I want to talk about misinformation for a moment because we still see and hear folks saying this is a hoax. The coronavirus is a hoax. It's not that bad. It's just like the flu. You can't trust the numbers. When you see or hear that, and I don't know how much attention you pay to it because both of you are very busy, but Dr. Nuzzo, when you hear that rhetoric, what goes through your mind? What's your reaction to that? I mean, my first thought is that people are looking for a way to escape the reality of this situation. Um, I have to believe that people aren't just willfully, um, uh, you know, um, spreading the wrong information. Um, but unfortunately, I think that's probably true to some extent. Um, you know, uh, I let me just be clear. Um, the numbers are not overinflated. Mm -hmm. The numbers, as awful as they are, likely represent an underestimation of the impact that COVID has had on our communities, the cases, the hospitalizations, and the deaths. Um, we are not finding everybody who has it. We're not finding everybody who's died of it. That's just a simple fact. Um, and it's, it's almost too difficult to comprehend. So I understand how people are looking to wave it away as something they don't have to worry about. We do that with big problems. Climate change is an example. It's just, it's so enormous that we just kind of, you know, retreat from, from the truth. Um, but unfortunately, that's not going to serve us well. And um, I really hope that people can focus on the things that they can do. And some of the things that we can do are actually quite simple. I don't understand the politicization of masks. Um, I mean, I understand that people don't like wearing masks. They're not fun. Um, but if a mask is what's going to keep you from dying or sp spread a virus to somebody who could die, if a mask is going to help you go to the grocery store safely and and to get out of your house, um, to me, it seems like a pretty simple task. And I think we are not serving ourselves well by waving away the simple things. Some of the stuff, you know, not seeing your family, that's a really hard thing, but a mask is not hard. Um, so, you know, we just need to, I think, focus on on the, the very real things that we can do to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm really worried, I have to say, coming in, in the following weeks about how people are gonna be talking about the vaccine. Um, I'm already seeing the spread of very, very um, dangerous information about the vaccine that is completely false. Um, and it's used to be that, you know, the, the anti-vaccination um, messages were kind of these fringe groups, but we're having very high level people talking about 
how the vaccine is going to do um, things to us that are just, it's just complete fabrication. We have a safe and effective vaccine. It's almost hard to believe that, you know, science worked in our favor, but it did. And we should not turn down this gift that we have been given. So let me ask you this. For those communities, and particularly communities that I'm from, which has some concerns and which are valid in terms of past experiences with science, research, how do you suggest the best approach to not just a campaign, but really embracing these communities and understanding their concerns and then educating or working with them on the importance of this vaccine? And also, if there is some acknowledgement to those past experiences. And of course, I'm talking about the Tuskegee uh, experiment. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where local leaders are going to play in a really important role. Um, so if you're a leader in your community, if you're someone that people look up to, really encourage you to get the information about the vaccine so that you can educate your community and answer their questions best you can. Um, you know, I think that's the best way to overcome the very real concerns and the, you know, historic mistrust. Um, you know, it's not coming from me or even national leaders. It has to come from local leaders. Um, and, you know, local leaders, I think, are going to be absolutely essential. And so if they can get the information about the vaccine and be able to answer the questions that their community has. And, you know, who a local leader is, you know, it depends on what the community is. I mean, if you're the leader of your family, you know, and you have a long extended family um, and you don't want to see them um, needlessly get infected and die, I think it's important to have those tough conversations and explain why that thing that they saw on the internet is not true and why, um, you know, the vaccine is going to be quite helpful. When word of the vaccines obviously being approved, there was this, for some, sort of a sense of, okay, now we're turning the corner as a nation. But as some of our top infectious disease specialists noted, that doesn't mean that we should relax in terms of safety measures. Going into 2021, I mean, as scientists, as researchers, based on what y'all have been able to assess so far, how do you see 2021, maybe the first few months? How important is that in terms of not just human behavior, even with these vaccines, but also the information that you all provide is going to be so crucial because if we see that there are going to be these spike and increase in in positive cases. And that says a whole lot about what we're doing in terms of our human behavior. I do think we're turning a corner. I mean, I do think the light is beginning to break um, and I am quite hopeful for 2021. Um, and so I, I think we absolutely have to celebrate the remarkable scientific accomplishment that is um, having now two um, authorized vaccines for use that are really amazing in terms of, of their ability to protect people. Um, so so it, there is good news for sure. That said, um, it's going to take time to roll out. And we still, I think there's one unanswered question um, right now, which is um, how much the vaccines will prevent people from transmitting. We, we know they're going to um, be very helpful in preventing people from getting sick. But we don't fully know if they're going to prevent people from being able to um, get infected without any symptoms and then give the virus to others. There's some good reason to think that they will, but we need a little bit more time to understand. That said, it's going to take time to roll out. There's still that, that overarching question. And so, and given where the case numbers are and the trends that we are seeing now, I think it's, it's fair to expect that we should brace ourselves for some very hard weeks mm -hmm. to come, particularly with the holidays. You know, we know that, um, Although everyone said it's not a good idea to gather with people outside of your household, people have been. And my guess is they'll probably still do it 
um, in the holidays to come. And, you know, unfortunately, that's going to increase transmission um, unless people are able to do that um, safely. So I think we have to brace ourselves. But I do think that um, hope is in our future. And I am very excited about the prospects of, of you know, the slow, the slow path to return to normalcy. Mm -hmm. Director Blower, your assessment going into 2021? Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that, you know, it's going to be, we're still, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel, but we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. And what we're seeing is people making really risky decisions um, uh, because I think um, there's a lot of fatigue and there's a lot of just um, loneliness and desire to be connected to people. And I completely understand that. But at the same time, um, you know, we've had more deaths in the last two months than we've experienced in the whole arc of the pandemic, really. I mean, we're seeing a rate of death that is just so stunning, um, which means we are not out of the woods and that you're going to have less people at your tables next year if you continue to engage in risky behavior. And I think I don't um, necessarily think that people are really heeding those um, uh, warnings and they are real and they are being, um, you know, you can just look at the hospitalization data and see that there are le there's less capacity in our medical system um, and we still have a lot of real active disease. And so I think um, the first few months of 2021 are going to still be quite devastating as it relates to outcomes. Um, but then I do think as we get more immunity and as we see more people taking advantage of the vaccines um, and we see more vaccine dissemination in our states uh, i agree i mean this time next year i think it's a completely different story if we continue uh, to maintain um, our focus on being safe um, and uh, we give the medical community the time that they need in order to effectively respond and do their work um, and I think that that's really all they're asking, and it's really all we should be doing. So following the science and also following the data, I didn't ask you all this last time, but let me ask you this. How are you all personally doing in all of this with the work that you're doing and balancing your own personal lives and your own households? Dr. Nuzo, what's it been like for you? We're okay. I mean, you know, comparatively speaking, we're okay. And that's something I keep trying to tell myself, um, you know, we're, my, my family's healthy and um, we're hanging in there. My, my son is seven. He hasn't been in school since March. Um, he does remote learning. So that's obviously very challenging and he feels very um, sad to be away from his friends. Um, I've got a four-year-old who's, who's in daycare and she at least gets to play with other children. Mm. Um, you know, I think like everybody, we're tired. We're just, we're tired of, of not, seeing loved ones and not being able to live normal, you know, lives. Um, tired of having to think about it. It's, it's tough when you work on the pandemic and it's also affecting your life. So there's never really a break from work. Um, so that's tough. Um, that said, I, I try to, I've been trying to find positive aspects to all of this, just, you know, <laughs> to stay mentally healthy. And one thing I've discovered is that, um, you know, there is something kind of nice to not having as many like weekend errands and like running around on the weekends, you know, getting your kids from one activity to the next. And sometimes by the end of the weekend, pre-pandemic, you just kind of like, fall into a heap because you didn't really have much downtime. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of downtime now and there's something kind of nice about that. So I think, you know, going forward in the, the after days uh, when um, we, when the pandemic is behind us, I think we'll try to try to maintain some of that. Mm -hmm. Director Bellara, what about you? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, like, like Jennifer, I'm also a mom and uh, I'm an only mom. So I'm only parent rather. And so I'm here with my kids um, and we are isolated um, and it's, it is hard. And I think for them, especially um, everyone misses social interaction. I think it's really hardest on the kids. Um, but, you know, we Zoom and we try to stay connected and we talk to people on the phone and my mom Zooms into dinner every night and keeps us company. Um, and I think, you know, it, these are sacrifices that are small um, if we think about the, the long-term gains that we can make in trying to keep the disease um, in check. Um, from, from Jennifer's perspective, I think is great are those silver linings. Um, you know, I never even worked with Jennifer before uh, <laughs> the pandemic. Um, and so I've made some tremendous professional colleagues um, that uh, I can't wait to spend more time with. I've only been with Jennifer in person one time. Um, and so I can't wait. Really? To to yeah. Really? <laughs> quite exceptional. Um, it's so, a socially distanced photo shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so we could wave from 10 feet away with our masks. But it was like very, I, I didn't think it was going to be so um, emotionally overwhelming, you know, to meet Jennifer, I was like, I'm, I got a little choked up. Um, and a lot of that is because I think younger generations are used to virtual intimacy, like where they're meeting people online and they have online like relationships. But as a as a Gen Xer, uh, I have to say that this is, yeah, this is something new. Like I've never made friends online before. Um, and this is probably the closest I'll ever come to that. Uh, and so it's been really interesting to learn about how to like form connections and, and really bond with people uh, when you can't like experience them uh, in person, which I think is, is really interesting. As a fellow Gen Xer, I can definitely, definitely <laughs> agree with that. Finally, y'all, as we wrap up, and I may have asked you this last time, I can't remember, but when you reflect on the work that you all are doing, where does this sort of rank, you know, in your career? And, and Director Blower, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think this is probably the most important work I've done in my career. Um, I, I, I've done good work um, and I've used data to solve really challenging problems, but never at this scale. You know, I, I did a lot of good work in the state of Maryland um, where, we were, where we were able to do some really uh, incredible things and have impacts. Um, I work with cities all across the country and the globe, um, but this, this is something that every single person in my life understands um, that they rely on and that resonates. And I think that that's the kind of impact that, you know, is a, a once in a career kind of impact for sure. Um, like I said at the top, like I, I wish it wasn't, um, I wish the data didn't mean that we were looking at, you know, 300,000 uh, deaths. I wish that we weren't, you know, in a situation where we were talking about these, you know, really awful outcomes. Um, but from uh, the perspective of meaningful work, this is some of the most I've done. Dr. Nuzo? I used to have to explain to people what an epidemiologist is and does, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think I'll ever have to do that again. Um, so that has really been a profound change, um, I think. It's been an enormous privilege to work with this team and to see their the magic that they do and um, you know to try to shape it. I'm enormously proud of the work um, that the Coronavirus Resource Center has been doing. You know. It, it's not just about the, the data. I mean, they, they've really put out stuff that has been making change and changing how states are acting and practicing and policy decisions. 
Um, and there's just so many examples of that that we've accumulated along the way. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm really proud of the change that has been prompted. Um, that said, you know, I, I hope, I hope this is the last big thing I have to do in my career. I hope one day people will forget what an epidemiologist is. And I, I hope that um, the prominence of our work is is not so much in the public eye because there isn't a need for it to be in the public eye. Um, I used to work uh, with um, D.A. Henderson, who um, accomplished many things in his career, but one of the most famous is that he um, led the global team that eradicated smallpox. Mm -hmm. And he used to describe his career as, you know, he, he worked on trying to get rid of smallpox and then they ran out of cases, so he ran out of a job. I hope we work to put ourselves out of work um, so that we have to find something else to do. It's a good way to end this conversation. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Associate Professor and Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and Beth Blauer, Executive Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civic Impact. Thank you both for joining me again and taking the time, and thank you to you and your team for all the information that you all are providing to so many, whether it's for us folks here in the media or for the general public at large. Thank you, and happy holidays. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Be safe, everyone. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. November was not a good month for Georgia's unemployment rate. According to the State Department of Labor, the jobless rate increased about 1.2 percentage points to 5.7 last month. Now, analysts cite it's likely due to the spike in new coronavirus cases. 49 states are experiencing a rise in these cases. And while Congress inches a little closer to some sort of new relief packages, Businesses, whether local or Fortune 500, they've all been impacted by the pandemic. And besides this major health crisis, 2020 included, obviously, protests for racial justice and, of course, the presidential election. Corporations have also faced calls for greater, quote, corporate responsibility to address social issues. So this prompted a new ongoing series of conversations we wanted to have with corporate leaders in executive positions. What's the role of corporations and leaders during a time like this? Well, joining me now, someone newly cemented in a president's role. Chris Womack became president of Georgia Power on November 1st. And then next April, he'll also become chairman and CEO when Paul Bauer steps down. Now, Womack was the executive vice president and president of external affairs for the Southern Company, Georgia Power's parent company. And a note of disclosure, Georgia Power is a underwriter of WABE. Chris Womack joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for having me. 2020 is coming to an end. For many, it can't come fast enough. Can you reflect for me through your lens? How do you sum up 2020? 2020 has been a very difficult year uh, with the 
onset of COVID and the coronavirus pandemic, it really changed how all of us functioned and how we lived and how we worked and how we socialized. So it has impacted, I think, every aspect of our lives. And so it has been a, an incredible challenge. Uh, then you move through uh, the latter part of the year in the May timeframe uh, with the killing of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and all the issues around racial justice and social injustice, all those issues that flourished in, in all of our communities. I mean, it has made for a very difficult and challenging year. And so, you know, there's excitement today about uh, the onset of a, of a new vaccine. Mm -hmm. And, and I also think there's also enthusiasm and excitement about uh, some of the conversations and things that have taken place uh, as a result of all the conversations and discussions around racial injustice mm -hmm. and social injustice. So kind of the, uh, the worst of times, uh, but I think we're, we're learning to, to try to uh, learn from it and try to be better from it and, and looking forward to a, a bright future. And I want to focus on the pandemic for just a moment because, listen, as a utility company, Georgia Power can expect to deal with natural disasters. There's nothing in the strategic plan on dealing with the pandemic. Obviously, you were not in this leadership role, but Georgia Power had to shift just like everybody else did in its daily operations. Uh, how are you all doing now? Uh, we're doing we're doing well. Yes, we had to make shifts. We had to adopt uh, Center for Disease Control guidelines and, and, and involving social distancing, uh, making sure we were doing the appropriate hygiene uh, activities, make sure we were wearing face masks and doing all those things to, to keep our employees safe, uh, which is our, our top priority. At the same time, we had to make sure that we continue, continue to provide uh, the customer service that our, our, our customers expect from us. I mean, so, I mean, we're always on, so we're never off. And so we had to make sure we found ways to keep the operations going, uh, make sure power plants continue to function, mm -hmm. uh, and but put in place procedures to make sure that we kept our employees safe. One of the things that we do and respond to uh, throughout the course of the year, and we respond to disasters and storms and, and hurricanes and, and things that cause interruptions in our service. And so when that happens, we still have to get back out there and restore service. But we had to make sure we did that with the appropriate protocols to make sure that our employees uh, were safe. Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of it all, in the midst of the difficulty of it all, uh, we kept the power on and we continue to provide our customers with the reliable service that they expect from us. Yeah, you mentioned uh, keeping your employees safe. I do want to know, Mr. Womack, to your knowledge, were there any deaths due to COVID-19 that you know of among your Georgia Power family? Uh, not here. Uh, fortunately, we're fortunate and blessed that not here in, in our company. Uh, unfortunately, we know some others across the country, across the United States, uh, that in fact have suffered fatalities. Uh, and so uh, COVID has been very difficult. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. You all made the decision, as you mentioned, to not disconnect any customers. You also implemented some deferral payment programs. I don't think Georgia Power, have y'all ever had to do something like that in your history? Uh, 
We've always, I mean, one of the things we do, and we don't, I, we don't, we don't talk a lot about it. We, I mean, we work with customers who who may be having some difficulties, and so uh, structuring different payment plans, uh, looking at different payment options, uh, creating uh, responsible and responsive uh, payment uh, opportunities for our customers. That's one thing that that we do. Our, our customer service operation kind of pays attention to the needs of our customers and, and try to be responsive. Mm-hmm. Clearly this year has been a little, little, little different and a little more difficult. Uh, but yes, we went through a period where there were no disconnections. And even, even after that period suspended, uh, we continue to find ways to work with our customers to make sure uh, that we, we limited and minimized uh, disconnections wherever possible. And that involved a lot of discussions and conversations uh, with our customers to find ways to, to establish uh, different payment options and different payment plans. Is it a possibility that you all could return to such a plan because we keep hearing that the nation is going to experience another dark moment here as it relates to the virus? Cases are continuing to increase. The national unemployment rate is, is increasing. As you just heard me mention Georgia's, would you all consider you know, implementing again, that measure to not disconnect anyone? Rose, we will, of course, pay attention to what's happening in the in the economy and the communities where we operate. And I mean, I commit to you that we will be responsive to our customers. And so if they're having difficulties, I strongly encourage them to call us and let us talk about uh, what kind of program and what, what kind of plan we can work out mm-hmm. that suits their, their respective condition. Now, we're experiencing some feedback on Chris Womack's connection. We'll take a break and continue the conversation in just a moment. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We have Georgia Power President Chris Womack back with us, and we apologize for the technical delay there. Chris, as we come back now, besides the pandemic, the other big story, of course, was the presidential election, but then also the many nationwide protests regarding the police killings of black Americans, calls for racial justice. Many corporations we know issued declarations, whether it was in support of Black Lives Matter or a similar narrative. Did Georgia Power issue anything? Yes, Georgia Power Company, Southern Company, all of our all of our companies spoke very loudly and clear about our opposition uh, to issues of racial racial injustice and social injustice, and have continued on a path to make sure that we are doing the things in our company to make sure that we are pro- providing a fair, uh, equitable environment for all of our employees as well as looking at a whole host of different activities to support uh, the communities and where we live and, and, and work, uh, but also doing things to, to support uh, black business, but as well as other businesses, uh, other underrepresented businesses as well. So we have engaged in a comprehensive program to, to address a lot of these issues. We communicated very early on that we thought this was a, a role for the business community to take a, to play a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we do run our business and as we look at all, all of our stakeholders, this is work that we must focus on and be committed to. And, and that has been our direction and that has been our work. 
as you come into this role as president of Georgia Power, are you looking to even strengthen that in terms of racial equity, diversity, and inclusion? Do you want to see some changes, enhancements within Georgia Power now under your leadership? We, we will continue to get better uh, in, in this area. We will continue to talk about issues of race. Uh, we'll continue to talk about issues of diversity, uh, equity, as well as inclusion. And so, I mean, we'll talk about all the other all the all the other issues that that align with our business. But these will be issues that we'll also talk about as well. Uh, one of the things we have 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 enjoyed. I mean, people have different perspectives, and one of the things we have been trying to do is create an environment where people can can have. Uh, trustful and meaningful conversations to to better understand each other. And so we'll continue to do things uh, to create that kind of environment inside of our company. Let me ask you this, because you have been in corporate America for a while now. I'm curious, along your journey through your career path, did you experience any barriers or challenges that you might have thought were related to race or, or inequity along the way? If so, can you draw upon that experience now as a leader? And yeah, Rose. I mean, it's my experience has been. I, I really just I focused a lot on um, putting the work in and 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 trying to do a good job with whatever job I had. And if I if I experienced difficulties, if I experienced challenges, tried to find ways to to navigate around them. And so, yeah, you'll have some good days and you'll have some not so good days. Uh, but I think, and as I learned growing up in South Alabama in the in the late 50s and 60s, uh, we have to keep marching. We have to keep keep putting the work in uh, to bring about the change that, that we want to see. And so it's uh, exciting to see kind of uh, the, some of the progress that we've made. Yeah, it's very sad to see some of the things we continue to experience. Uh, but we have to use these opportunities now to to, to find ways to continue to be better and to and to bring races uh, closer together and, and have a better understanding around a lot of social and racial issues. That being said, you're just over a month into your new role as president of Georgia Power, but I imagine you have a certain leadership style. Uh, tell me about it. How do you define that? I'm I'm very accessible. I, I enjoy my engagement with the employees, and and that's what I've been doing this uh, this month since I've, I've returned back to Georgia Power Company. Uh, I've got a lot of people who I've worked with in the past, so from doing things to reacquaint with them, but also people who I don't know, uh, taking time to 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 introduce myself, but. As I speak with them, as I listen, as I learn what's going on in the company, they know that I'll be accessible. They know I'll be engaged, and and, and they know that we'll do this work with a, with a high degree of energy. And so, I think that's some of the things that they see for me and expect from me as I as I assume this new responsibility. When you look upon the importance of Georgia Power, not just from a utility standpoint and providing a very needed and quality of life, obviously, resource for all of us, let's be really clear. But also, how do you see from a community engagement standpoint, Georgia Power being in the community? Is that an area that you also want to assess? Georgia Power Company has always been known as a, as a leading corporate citizen throughout, throughout the state of Georgia. 
Uh, we we stand on a on a on a on a motto of being a citizen wherever we serve, and we will continue to do that. I think in this environment, it will challenge us to do things a little different uh, and find ways to to be more impactful and find ways to, uh, to to really make a difference and engage a real broad cross section of our communities to to focus on on some difficult and challenging issues. Uh, but you can expect that Georgia Power Company and the people of Georgia Power Company will be leaders in our communities as we, as we have been in the past. Finally, as we wrap up, can't let you go without asking when we talk about Plant Vogel. Given the delays and all the setbacks, um, and then also now with this pandemic, can you give our listeners an update on where Plant Vogel is right now and the timeline in terms of where where you all are with this project being completed? Yeah. The project continues to advance. Uh, we've made some major milestones in the past couple of weeks. We took receipt of the first nuclear fuel uh, at the at the site uh, last week. Uh, we've made a couple of other technical milestones. And so we continue to advance and, and, and make progress. Right now, we're scheduled to be online in November of, of 21. We've got an aggressive schedule to hopefully try to try to beat that date. Uh, but work continues to, to advance on that project. And the con- project continues to be a good investment for the state and a good investment for, for our customers. And, it, and at the same time, it will also provide uh, carbon-free energy uh, for 60, 70 years plus to come. So we're still bullish about the project and look forward to, to its completion, completion with Unit 3 sometime next year and then with Unit 4 uh, in 2022. So we are continuing to make progress and continue to advance and getting the work done and excited about where we are. And finally, did you get any advice about assuming not only this role but in, in April? And if so, who gave it to you and what was it? I've I've heard from previous CEOs. I've heard from friends across the country who are also who who run large organizations, and they say things like be be a good listener, uh, provide great clarity about direction, uh, and also remain humble. And so, I think if we do some of those things, I, I think we'll continue to be successful, and this, this will be an enjoyment, enjoyable experience for myself, but also the entire organization. Who's been a mentor for you, Chris Bomack, throughout your journey? I've had a host. I mean, I've had Earl Grays, who, who's been a dear friend of mine for, for, for many, many years, uh, the David Grains of the world. Uh, I've had uh, a lot of political friends like Liam Panetta. I've got had a cross-section of folks who've been good friends and mentors of mine, both inside and outside the company, who whose shoulders I stand on and who have been who have been very helpful to me throughout my career. Chris Womack, president of Georgia Power. And then also next year in April, you will become chairman and CEO when Paul Bowers steps down. Mr. Womack, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Rose, thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.